Everyone knows someone who's got heart, but just how does one get a good heart? That is what God wants from us, to have a heart like His, something that others can recognize immediately. Hey folks, it's Karen G. from the Tower Hill Communications team. Thanks for listening in to our Tower Hill podcast. Whenever or wherever you're listening, we hope this podcast gives you inspiration. And we'd love if you share this with someone that you know so that they'll feel inspired too. Join us now for chapter 11 in our sermon series called The Story. This week, we dig into the story of David and how he had a heart for the Lord. So let's kick it off to Pastor Jason Tucker right now. Previously, we were talking about how uh, the nation of Israel wanted a king. And God, which was super offensive to God, because God's like, no, you don't need a king. You have me as your king. They said, no, seriously, we really want a king. And so God, you know, eyes wide open, he, he tells him, look, just, you're going to get what you get and don't get upset. You really want a king? Just be ready because they're human beings and they're not going to rule perfectly. They're probably going to, you're not always going to like the fact that you have a king. And what God did was he even, in that poor decision, he even helped them by raising up a prophet. The first prophet we see is Samuel. And the idea is, is that prophets walk side by side with kings and the prophets would act as God's voice. So it was like the course correction to all the dumb things the king did. God's voice then could help course correct. Now it also made the prophet extremely unpopular. Because they'd always come in and tell you what you were doing wrong according to God. But the prophet represented God's voice in real time. The prophet's the one who anointed. And what they did back then is they took oil and they would anoint it over their heads. And it was a way of saying, you, your special dedication of service to God. And so the prophet played a big role in determining, like, who's the next king? Who's the next person that God has chosen? And the amazing thing now is when we see at Christmas time the birth of Jesus Christ, is we see the restoration of kingship as it should have been the whole time. It's putting God back on the throne. Jesus is both prophet and king. It's both about the voice of God and the reign of God in one person. It's the reset button. It's the way things should have been all along when we celebrate Jesus as the king of kings. So the first king was King Saul. He did not work out so well because he did dumb stuff, which is usually what gets us in trouble, doing dumb stuff. Thank you. Good night. Right? I mean, a big spiritual takeaway, but it's true. So where we left off last week, 1 Samuel 13, 14. This is Samuel talking to King Saul. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Interesting. Seeking a man after his own heart. That's, that's an interesting phrase. What does that mean exactly? It's like, we all want the king is going to be like the best. The, the best um, ability, the best talent. But God doesn't seem to be looking for that. He wants someone with the right heart. We've seen this over and over again in this story, that God cares more about the heart. Because you can do something with the right heart. You can't do something 
with just talent alone. It's not about talent when it comes to what God is doing. It's exactly like the 2000 film, The Replacements. Exactly like it. That was a little bit of a joke, but it's kind of like it. So if you haven't seen this, you've had since 2000. So I'm going to, a whole bunch of spoilers, and it's your fault. So this is a, a movie where a bunch of NFL players go on strike, and the replacement players play out the season. Of course, Keanu Reeves is the quarterback. Why wouldn't he be? And Gene Hackman's the coach. Why Gene Hackman ever took this job, I don't know. No, it's a good movie. So anyway, the the replacement team gets all the way to the championship game, and they play the championship game with the talented quarterback who crossed over the strike line. So now they have the most talented quarterback back, and they're losing the game. And the reporter goes up to the coach, Gene Hackman, and says, what are you going to do? What do you need to turn things around? He says, heart. Lots. And lots of heart. And Keanu comes back and they win the game. Just, hey, listen, you had your chance. (laughs) We need heart. Lots and lots of heart. And I feel like, in a strange way, admittedly, it's not unlike this moment where God is saying, look, you all wanted talent. This is, you all wanted to pick certain people to be your king. What I'm telling you now is, in order to turn this around, we need heart. Lots and lots of heart. We need somebody with the right heart in the position of king if we're going to turn it around. It's like God all throughout the story. Heart is greater than ability. It has been all throughout. Heart is greater than ability. This is hard to hear in a way because you know that you don't have an excuse. I think a lot of us, listen, I'm a professional Christian. I get paid to be a Christian, basically. (laughs) Which is super weird. But I do. But before then, I would come up with all sorts of reasons why I couldn't do ministry. Because I wasn't qualified. I hadn't gone to seminary. I didn't do that. Like, it's really easy to find all sorts of reasons why you can't participate. This says, nope, sorry, everyone's in. Because it's not about what you can do, it's about what God can do through the right heart. But what do we mean when we talk about heart, though? Because this gets thrown around a lot. It's like, um, you know, our favorite all-heart guy, Clark Griswold, I don't think it's exactly what we're talking about. You know, you hear people say, oh yeah, that guy's all-heart. That's not always a good thing, because it also means, like, they kind of fluctuate wildly with their emotions. Like, a heart totally untamed is everywhere. Like, it has no direct, like, you go from, like, sentimentality, but over-sentimentality, right? You have, you have this wide swing of emotions in the human heart. You can have guts or intestinal fortitude, as my grandmother used to say. Or foolishness, right? I mean, you can be, just be dumb about it. You can have love, deep and abiding love. You could always have, like, puppy love and infatuation and self-gratifying love. It's very different. Or mature Christian faith, and then a faith that's always seeking for spiritual feelings. I used to run into this a lot when I was working in youth ministry, is that kids 
would often try, they thought their faith should always feel like you're going to a retreat and you're having a come to Jesus moment and you're always having that feeling. And so what they didn't realize is faith is really lived between the altar calls, right? Faith is lived between the mountaintops. It's lived in the valleys. But a kid doesn't want to hear that. They just want to chase the feeling. So the problem is if all we're doing is chasing spiritual feelings, we're never really living our faith. Or we're living it a very small percentage of the time. So what are we talking about? Well, I think what is clear is that our hearts, or having the right heart, isn't something that we're just born with, like we have it all figured out. Rather, our heart is something that is shaped over time. And every experience you've had, every person that you've loved, all the good, the bad, and the ugly in your life has shaped your heart. But what does it look like to allow God to shape your heart? This is, I think, what we're getting at when we're thinking of having God's own heart, a heart that is shaped by God. And again, this is in continuity now with what's been happening throughout the story. Very early on, what did God do? He said, this is how you have a God-shaped heart. And he taught them the Shema, that prayer. Remember the different points of the Shema were what? Make God first. Remember what God has done. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Make God first, remember what God has done, talk about it often, and live in gratitude. Like, that's how you allow God to shape your heart every day. So the idea is, how do we find a king like this? How do we find a king who's got a heart that has been shaped by God, or at the very least, a heart that's willing to be shaped by God? And so, we go on to the next part of the story. This is 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel... How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So again, he's telling Samuel, get ready, you're going to anoint the next king. And he goes to Jesse's house and Jesse like lines up his kids. And the first kid that he sees is this big strapping kid, Eliab, who's like barrel chested and square chinned. And he's like, oh yeah, that's going to be the next king. And this is what God says to Samuel, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then he sees little shepherd boy David. And God says, that's the one. That's the next king. Verse 13, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Now, in order to have a heart that is shaped by God, again, this is going to feel like a no-duh point, but I think it's worth saying. It begins with a relationship with God. God doesn't come kicking down the doors of our heart to change it. And I know some people actually wish he would. That's not how it works. We have to let God in. This is the beginning of having a heart that is shaped by God. It's having a relationship. It's saying, yes, God, I believe in you. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and so I'm going to live my life now. Accordingly, 
Make me the person, give me the heart after God's own heart. Give me the right heart because I know that through me, you're going to do things that I just never would have been able to do. I'm going to have the kind of life, the kind of joy and peace that I never would have had otherwise. My heart that's all over the place actually will have its anchor finally. Then we get uh, the big, one of the most famous stories in all of scripture. We have this battle with Goliath. How many of you have heard the story of David and Goliath? Okay, yeah. Let's make it sure. Well, the idea was, now David has grown a little bit. Not too much time has passed. He is still a shepherd boy. And the Philistines are about to attack the nation of Israel. And, man, I just realized I have way too many movie references in this sermon. But uh, in the movie Troy, starring Brad Pitt, they would have a champion go out and fight on behalf of the entire army so that it could be decided by the champion. So you don't have to kill everybody. Just let the champions duke it out. Give me your best person, and we'll put our best person, and we'll have a fight, and then that's how we determine who wins. So the Philistines march out Goliath, who apparently was this massive, scary dude, and no Israelite wanted to fight him. So it was going to be a slaughter, because then it would just be army against army, and the nation of Israel would have lost. So nobody's brave enough to fight Goliath and end this thing. Not even King Saul, which shouldn't surprise us. He was not a man after God's own heart. And then we get young David stepping up and famously approaching King Saul. He says this. Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. I wonder if Saul's just like, right. Yeah, yeah, you killed a lion and a bear, huh? But I think Saul's thinking, throw a kid out there, see what happens. (laughs) Like, we're going to lose anyway. Maybe they'll see, I don't know. He obviously thought it was worth a chance because he says, go and the Lord be with you. Quite famously then, we get David with his sling and stone taking out the mighty Goliath. Verse 50, so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand and he struck down the Philistine and killed him. I think this is another characteristic of what it means to have a heart like God's. It has courage. Having a heart shaped by God is a heart that beats with courage. Complete trust in God against all odds. Not foolishness, not blind trust. It's trusting that you have heard from God and you're going to act accordingly, no matter how crazy it may seem to others or even to yourself. Interestingly, I feel like the Christian faith sometimes gets characterized as being 
weak in a way. And I think it's probably because we have it so good in America. We can be pretty soft Christians because we're not getting persecuted physically like they are in other parts of the world. And, um, and Jesus says things about turning the other cheek. And I think there's a feeling like being a Christian means being kind of passive or being subdued. It's not. Having a heart like God's is full of courage. Jesus was not a terrible victim of violence. He laid down his life. You only lay down something that you have complete power over. Jesus never for a second lost his full power. He had the courage to lay it down for the sake of us all. That's not weakness or passivity. It takes courage. So, David kills Goliath, and as you can imagine, he becomes insta-celebrity. Everyone loves David. He's the kid that beat Goliath. Saul sees him as a threat. So much so, Saul decides, we got to get rid of David. So then begins this kind of chase scene where Saul is, and his army is trying to kill David and his men. This goes on for a while. And back this summer, I told the story about how David had a chance to end it, to kill Saul, let me just refresh you on that story. This is 1 Samuel 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Yep, that's in the Bible. I didn't make this up. David and his men were far back in the cave. And the way it goes down is, David and his men are hiding in the cave. Here comes Saul. The only time a, a king would be unprotected, right? Goes in the cave, and David has a chance to end it right there. And he doesn't. Instead, he sneaks up, he cuts a piece of Saul's robe, and after Saul leaves the cave, he comes out, with the piece of cloth saying, look, I had you, man. I had you. And you know it. And I'm showing you, I showed you mercy that you never would have given to me. David has an opportunity to kill him, but he shows mercy. This is another part, this is another characteristic of the beating heart of God, or heart that's shaped by God, is a heart that is filled with mercy. Forgiving enemies, showing grace. And again, mercy is not weakness. You can only be merciful if you have a position of power. Somebody who is weak doesn't always have the ability to show mercy. It's somebody who has something, who has the power, who has the say-so to show mercy. I could have done this, but I decided to show mercy. And then when God delivers David from King Saul, finally, David bursts forth in song. So David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. As you know, David was a songwriter. He wrote a lot of the psalms that were sung. Um, he, he was an artist. And this song's super long, so we're not going to read the whole thing, but I just want to... Uh, give you a couple of points out of it. 
Verse 7, in my distress I called to the Lord, I called out to my God from his temple. He heard my voice, my cry came to his ears. 38, I pursued my enemies and crushed them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. Interestingly, like he doesn't lead with this. It's because it's not about the fact that he did it. It's that I cried out to God and he enabled me to do it. Verse 47, the Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. Exalted be my God, the rock, my savior. Again, this is another characteristic of having a heart shaped by God. It's a heart that beats with gratitude. Gratitude for God's response to prayer. That against all odds, God continues to show up. No matter what struggles. And listen. David does not execute his faith perfectly. In fact, and we're going to talk about this next week. David makes some massive mistakes that are some of the worst things you can do as a human being. And yet, God even uses the brokenness to shape David's heart. At the end of David's life, there's been some restoration between him and God. God has made promises that kind of despite all this stuff that happened, your children, your son is going to continue as king after you. A whole nation and line of kings is coming from your bloodline. And David feels so Compelled to pray this in 1 Chronicles 17. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, Lord God, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And if this were not enough in your sight, my God, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. You, Lord God, have looked on me as though I were the most exalted of men. And when you walk through David's journey and you see the, the depths of the lows that he experienced, you really feel him thanking God but showing great humility in the fact that he is now in this position that he never thought he would be in. And that's another characteristic of a heart that's shaped by God is humility. It's response to God's blessings. I say this all the time. Unfortunately, it's not the case that Christians are the most humble people. And to me, that never made any sense. We should be the most humble people on the planet because we know what God did for us. We did not deserve, we could not earn, and he did it anyway. We know that he has plans, he has hopes, he has promises for us that are better than anything we could come up with on our own. We should be living with such humility. It's not about us and our ability. It's about what God has done through our hearts. And sadly, there are way too many churches and way too many Christians that are the behavior police, and it's all about you do this, and you do this, and you do this, and I'm sorry, that is not, you've got to throw all that away. That's garbage. That's something Pharisees say. That means, because that's what that saying is, if you do this, then God will do this. It's transactional. It's saying you're earning your way to your good graces with God, which is garbage. That is not the gospel. It's all about grace. Grace is something we do not earn, we do not deserve. It is given freely. 
So, what does God really want from you? He wants something. He wants your heart. God wants human hearts to become more like his because the more our heart is like his, the more we flourish. The more we become the people that we were meant to become. Our heart is more important than our ability. See, here's the thing. This is the thing that blows my mind. God wants from us because he wants for us. God doesn't selfishly need anything from us. He does not need our hearts. He wants our hearts so that we can live in freedom. We can live in hope. We can live in joy. We can live the way we were designed to live in a face-to-face relationship with God. Not because God's needy, because we're needy. We need salvation. We need rescue. We need hope. We need freedom. We're not like Jacob Marley in A Christmas Carol. Let me just carry these chains for an eternity. No. He wants us to be free. Yes, he does want something from you. But it's only because he wants much more for you. And here's the thing. And I think this is a barrier for a lot of people. You can get this far, but you could still not open your heart to God because you're afraid of what God's going to do. It's as if you're saying, you would never mean it to say this, but it's as if you're saying, I don't trust God's heart enough. So what about God's heart? Well, God's been revealing it every step of the way in this journey. He's revealed his heart in creation through Abraham. He's revealed it all along the way through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, the time of Judges, Ruth, Samuel, and David. God has been revealing his heart all along the way. But none of those people were able to live his heart perfectly because they're human. So what did God do? He came as one of us in Jesus Christ. The word became flesh. Why? So that he could show you what it looks like to live with God's perfect heart. So we all could see in history, we all could point to Jesus and say, that's what God's heart looks like when it's lived. Why? Because so we can live that way too. Out of gratitude for what he's done for us, we say, what can I do for you, God? I want to live like you. I want my heart to look like your heart. I want to become more and more like Jesus Christ. What is God's heart like? Well, you've seen it on display. And then in Jesus Christ, we see these echoes of what we've seen so far in the Old Testament. Pastor Tim Keller at Redeemer, New York City, uh, he did this very famous sermon called The True and Better, where he would say, God is the true and better better Moses. He's the true and better. As a way of showing that all those people that came before were sort of imperfect versions of what God would perfect through himself, through his son Jesus Christ. For example, Jesus is the true Passover lamb. Like Joshua, his name means savior. 
But he is, he's the true warrior. He is the true deliverer like in the time of Judges. He's the true redeemer like in the story of Ruth. He's the king of kings. And he fully reveals his heart through Jesus Christ. But I think the most revealing is when we get to the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. There was a prophecy that came true when Jesus was born. By the way, there were many. This is Matthew 1, verse 23. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. What does God want? He wants to be with us. This reveals his heart. God could talk a big game, but he put that talk into action. Taking up and laying down his own life so that he could be with us. Here's the thing. If you trust God's heart, you will let him shape your heart. Right? Like, I love that video with the guy giving the keys to his son with the car. We have to trust God enough to give him the keys to our heart and to let him shape us because we think that in the end, we're going to live the way that we were meant to live that we couldn't do on our own. That's the thing. Our hearts cannot be self-shaped to look like God's. God shapes our hearts through Jesus Christ. So here's a question for you today. How can you put your heart in position to be shaped? Maybe for you it simply starts with praying, crying out to say, God, I want you to shape my heart. I'm tired of closing you out because of fear or worry or doubt. Or because I have this one really annoying relative that keeps saying I have to go to church. I don't want them to be right. That's hypothetical. I never. Maybe it's by serving in a different way. I mean, my gosh, I don't know if you heard the panic in my wife's voice. But at 1030, they've been getting like 16 babies in, in the nursery. We're having a baby boom here. Congratulations. Help us. Maybe it's serving. Maybe it's reaching out to somebody who you know needs some help. Maybe it's being a friend to someone that you know needs your companionship. Maybe it's taking that first difficult, humble step of making things right. Whatever it is for you, why wait another minute? Where's it getting you? Let them start shaping your heart. Because here's the thing. We need heart. Lots and lots of heart. Amen.
As we invite the band to come back up and close us out in worship, let me offer a prayer for us. Lord, thank you so much for, for everything. And how even despite our wandering, you keep coming back. In fact, we discover that you've been with us the whole time. God, with us, you actually mean it. Thank you for your patience, for your grace, your mercy, your courage, your love. May we live our lives in gratitude and let that start today. Let's, let us trust you more and let you in more so that we can have hearts like yours. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.